Uh, N.T. Wright, maybe some of you have heard of this name. He's kind of this generation, C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've heard of that name too. Uh, these are scholars of a particular denomination, but when they speak, the rest of us go running back to our theologies and our doctrines and make sure they line up with what these really brilliant men share with us, right? They speak and we all listen. Uh, his blog this week, it's a fascinating blog. I want to share it with you kind of as my opening. Um, he talks about struggling to celebrate Easter at a time, and this was a past year. I don't know what year it was, but uh, he and his wife were experiencing personal loss and tragedy. And it was very, very difficult to get in the celebratory mood of Easter. And he, and he kind of compared that to the ancient Israelites, right, when they were in Babylon and they were struggling to sing songs to the Lord when they were in a strange land. And then he, then he finally compares it to what a lot of people will be feeling maybe this year. Um, lots of personal loss, a lot of, lot of tragedy, a horrible war in Ukraine all coming on top of pandemic, pandemic, frayed nerves. And he asked the question, should we be celebrating at a time like this? He then reminds us of something that C.S. Lewis said during World War II, who was arguing against people who said that you shouldn't be studying during a time of war, right? Or for that matter, for our purposes this morning, you shouldn't be celebrating during these hard times. This is what C.S. Lewis said, there is no ordinary time. Human life has always lived on the edge of a precipice. If you wait to search for knowledge and beauty, or if you wait to celebrate, right, until things become normal and secure, you will wait forever. He was pointing out that it is absolutely normal and it is absolutely acceptable to celebrate in times of trial and tribulation, to live life to the fullest. And, and again, I mean, this is going to be my point this morning, is how much more does this apply to Easter? Right? If we only celebrated Easter when our lives were going good, everything was in place, right? I, I would say that we probably missed the point entirely of Easter. Easter, after all, it tells us about God's victory over death itself. And that means what it means, even in the face of this crazy world that we live in that is still filled with hate and horror and war. See, here's where many people go in times like this. What difference did the cross make? What difference did it make then? What difference does it make now? Does it make any difference in my life whatsoever? Is it some event that happened 2,000 years ago and there's some kind of cosmic deal made and I just kind of live my life? Throughout history in horrible times, people lose perspective. They kind of get wrapped up in the moment, in that moment in time, and they ask, where's God? And for Christians, this soon morphs into, again, what difference did the cross make then and what difference can it make now, if any? For lots of folks, I'm going to show you a post, and it's from a very good friend of mine. I hope they don't listen to my message. I don't think they do. Didn't, I'm not going to share the name. But sadly, it sums up the only difference that the cross makes for a lot of people. All right? So, again, this is a very close friend of mine, and I'm not bagging. I, I just want to lift something out here. Hit that next slide there. He writes this, and it was a post on Facebook. It says, without Jesus, I was headed straight to hell. Because of his death on the cross and resurrection, he gave me eternal life with him in heaven someday. That's why Easter is so special. Without Jesus saving my life, I don't know where I'd be. But with him, my life has direction and purpose. I know I'm never alone. He forgave my sin and gave me new life. He adopted me into his family and made me a child of God. I'm forever grateful for what Jesus did on the cross for me. 
I'm forever grateful that he rescued me from hell and gave me eternal life. Now, 100% true, 100% beautiful, 100% honest, right? I just got to say that right out, but it's not enough. Jesus died for far more than just me or my buddy or maybe just my family or my friends or maybe you and your friends. He died for much more than our wrecked little lives, much more than that. I just wonder from this perspective, is, is his purpose? I mean, he writes he's got a purpose and direction now. Is it only to tell others about Jesus so that they too can be saved and get a ticket out of here? It's like plucking precious items from the flames that will eventually consume everything, right? Like the catcher in the rye kind of thing going on here. His only hope lies in the future. And the only hope for anyone then, if that's true, the only hope for anybody lies in the future. Nobody has any hope for right now. See, but that's not enough. Jesus died for far more than he, far more than me. He died for far more than you. He died for far more than simply our future. Jesus wants for us more now. Right? He, wants, he called us to more now, and so he equipped us for more now. And I, I want you to notice the words I highlighted. Us, it's not me, it's not I, it's us. Right? And it's now. It's not in the future. It's not when you die. Right? What good is hope when you're dead? Well, it, I mean, okay, you've got to take that with a grain of salt. Okay, now, which leads me to my, a final quote, and I want to jump back into Scripture after this. And I shared with you this quote from a, a Dr. Eric Vale several months back. But it, but it just works today. He writes this, I could not figure out how it all worked. He was a little kid growing up in church. Jesus had been crucified centuries before I was born. I did not, exi I did not exist yet, but this long ago event was somehow intended for my salvation. I had not yet sinned. How is preemptive atonement possible? Furthermore, if Christ made atonement for sin, how on earth could I connect with what he had done across a chasm of nearly 2,000 years? His blood was supposed to cleanse my sin, but I could not go back in time and have any contact with the actual blood that he shed. I really wanted to understand. Essentially, Dr. Bale is asking the same question that is on so many people's minds today. What difference does the cross make? As we look at our world, it's very easy to go, well, it doesn't appear to be making a whole lot of difference at all. People are just as stupid as ever. They just do dumb things left and right. They hurt people. Did the cross make any difference? Again, for some, it's a personal ticket to heaven, escape from this mess. That's, that's everything, right? In fact, I think that's the prayer of a lot of people. Either take me or return, because this place is a mess, and I just really don't want to deal with it anymore. Right? See, but that's not enough. Jesus died for far more than simply an escape plan for humans. See, it's not by way of the cross Jesus rescues us from this mess. It's by the way of the cross Jesus rescues this mess. And that includes everything, everything that you see, everything that you breathe in, everything that you touch and feel, not just humans, all creation. But here's the problem, and I, and I, and I talked about this a couple months back, and I, I just kind of got to bring it back. In Scripture, there are two stories being told. So we don't realize that, and when we don't realize that, we, we conflate them. We, we squish them together, and, and we kind of make them the same. But when we do that, well, first of all, they have to remain this, together, right? They can't be separated, but they are two separate stories. And when we squish them together or ignore the differences, we lose and it's some incredible insights that each story has for us. I want to share these two stories with you this morning. 
So first there's the gospel story or the human story, right? This is the story that many of you, this is the one you've heard. This is the, the Bible story. Maybe you've shared it, maybe you haven't. Here's the grand narrative, the perfect creation, right? Genesis 1, 2, and the fall in Genesis 3. Human sin, everything went. And then there's the Christ response, right? Jesus died for your sins. Repent and believe in Jesus so you can be forgiven and go to heaven for all eternity when you die. And again, I shared this with you a couple months back. This is an ugly story, and this is bad news if you love the earth and if you love the world and if you love everything about the world and everybody in the world, right? This, this definitely has a, right, every man for himself vibe, right? <laughs> get out, right? Just get yourself out. But here's the bigger story, right? There's that human story, the gospel story, but there's also the bigger story in which the human gospel story is a part of and it's couched in. It's the creation story. The creation story starts in chapter 1 of Genesis with nothing but death, no life. And then the grand story ends at the end of the book of Revelation, right? With the end of death, only life. If Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, nothing about the earth was expressing itself in love toward God and neighbor. But the creation story doesn't end with Genesis. We all try to make chapters 1 and 2 be the Genesis story. The, the creation story goes from Genesis to Revelation. The end of the creation story will be when God's self, God's glory can permeate every square inch of his creation. When all creation lovingly responds to God and neighbor, thus experiencing true life. Abundant life, life everlasting, right? There's a whole bunch of phrases being thrown out there in the New Testament, and that's what we're talking about here. Not a future, but an experience of life now, God's life. We are invited to participate in God's very life. This is the bigger creation story that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to this, starting at verse 24. Then the end will come when he, God, Jesus, excuse me, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he, Jesus, has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Continue in chapter, verse 26 and then 28. The last enemy to destroy is death. That's what we're celebrating today. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Right? That's the creation story that at the very end in the book of Revelation, God will, by way of the blood of Christ and the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, God will permeate everything, everywhere. The creation story from Genesis to Revelation, the triune God inhabiting his world to give it life and save it from the possibility of death. That's the big story. But as humans, <laughs> here's where it gets ugly, as humans, as God-bearers, his, his image bearers, right? We were supposed to manage and orchestrate all of this to completion, right? But we failed. We failed miserably. And that's the human story. That's the gospel story within the bigger creation story that many of you grew up believing was the story. But as you notice this little schematic here, the human story is couched inside of and, and held within the creation story. The fact of the matter is that throughout the creation story, death was always a possibility. Creation could respond negatively or discreatively to the Spirit's call to fellowship and life. And that's exactly what happened in chapter 3 of Genesis, right? The fall. That's the human story. 
And therefore, God's plan always included Jesus and the incarnation and the Holy Spirit as the completion of creation, right? Only by way of the incarnation, eventually the giving of the Holy Spirit, could God permanently dwell in amongst his people, thus establishing life. But because of human sin, right, we failed to be caretakers of creation, he also had a second task. That's to die for our sins. Again, that's the story within the bigger story. The bigger story is that Christ was always, right? Alexander Shemman put it this way. The original plan, the son was sent not as a rescue operation to recover lost man, because man wasn't lost yet. It was rather for the completing of what he had undertaken from the very beginning, completing creation. And creation will only be complete when God is all in all. See, when we only know and talk about the human story, the gospel story, I, several unfortunate consequences. When we only tell the second story, the human story, the story within the story, we always start at people's failure. Right? We've got to convince them, no, you're bad, you're bad. <laughs> it's a lousy way to start a conversion story, right? We can almost guarantee a negative response. But when we start with the creation story, with their need to escape death, it's always like clutching at their heels, right? When we love them, where they are, who they are, why they are, they'll be showing up at church in crowds. When we only tell the human story, the cross only matters to me and my eternal destiny. Hope for when I'm dead. But when we share the creation story as well, right, we have a living hope. Like, I'm not celebrating solely Easter solely because thousands are being killed in Ukraine, and if they accepted Christ, they get to go to heaven. That's, that's, that is something to celebrate, but that's not solely why I celebrate Easter. I'm celebrating Easter because I know that in Christ Jesus, the evil rulers of this world will not have the last say. The Putins will lose in the long run. That's what gives us hope, right? I'm sure people in Ukraine right now, I'm not sure if they have hope. If they don't have Christ, I don't know how they have hope. But if they have Christ, they have hope. Not only, again, that they will see him if that bomb lands on them horribly enough, but in him, when they leave this earth, their kids and their grandkids, it's getting better. Right? You don't realize this, but since the time of Christ and the introduction of his values in this world, a lot of horrible, horrible stuff has just gone by the wayside. And it literally started with Christ. And we sit back and we get kind of wrapped up in this moment. We think, man, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. No, it's not. It's not. God is not done with this world, right? He is about redeeming it. And he is going to redeem it. That's what gives me hope. That's why I celebrate Easter. The world may be corrupted, disordered, ravaged by sin, but God still loves it. And God intends for it to fulfill its destiny in Christ. Sin messed everything up, messed up Christ's work in creation, but he came to undo it, undo those consequences, and to bring peace to the universe that is horribly out of harmony with God. And in one paragraph, I just want to share this with you this morning, one paragraph in his letter to the Colossians, Paul shares with them the basis of this crazy, crazy hope that they have. I'm going to start in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness 
of sins. Now, if you go back to those first 12 verses, Paul's been going to great length to commend the Colossians for their faithfulness and their fruitfulness, right? He's just bragging on them. He loves them to death, right? But then he turns to the reason why Jesus is their and our living hope rather than just a hope upon death. Right? They had some other issues that were kind of driving them down. And one of the, the, the big deal was people were saying that Jesus wasn't sufficient. He wasn't enough. And in this six verses, he just blasts that right out of the water. Right? Right out of the water. Now, I want you to notice as you're looking at this passage, 13 and 14, right? There's no, there's no future tense. It's all present tense. It's all here and now. He has rescued us. It's not he will rescue us when you die and go be with him. He has currently rescued you. That's a, that's a right now kind of thing. And then we have redemption right now, the forgiveness of sins right now. And then in verse 15, this is where it gets good. Now, in these six verses, I'm going to split it up. It's, like, it's a paragraph, but I'm going to split it in half. And I just want to let you know the first half, we're going to kind of plow through it. But that second half is where it gets crazy and amazing, all right? So in verse 15, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And unlike the Greeks who would use idols to represent their gods or the Jews who had a whole variety of manifestations, fire, light, wisdom, I mean, all these kind of words that, that, that represented the invisible God. Well, Paul's saying that the invisible God reveals his glory for everybody to see in Christ Jesus. It's no longer wrapped up in their wisdom literature. It's no longer wrapped up in metaphors and similes and all that. It's a breathing flesh and blood human being, Jesus Christ incarnate. And then in a parallel statement, he says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Again, this doesn't have anything to do with the fact that he is firstborn. No, right? That's a Gnostic belief that he was the firstborn of all creation, but he's not God. That, we do not believe that. Please don't believe that. This idea, it's a term of rank and authority, right? You read in the Psalms, who was, what nation was God's firstborn? Was it the first nation on earth? No, Israel. Throughout, throughout the Old Testament, you see these term, this term firstborn, and it doesn't always refer to sequentially, chronologically firstborn. What it's referring to is rank and authority. Firstborn is that kind of a title. It's not like you're the oldest brother. Right? You're, the val- you're the brother that God gave authority and power to. Passage continues in verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers, rulers and authorities, Old Testament way of talking about angels, right? New Testament way. All things have been created through him and for him. So not only is the initial making of the universe a historical fact centered on Christ, right, in him, but it's also its goal, right? When all things have been created through him and for him, right? When God comes to fully dwell in creation and to be all in all, creation will have fullness of life. By in Genesis 1, by the way Paul talks, he brings out these words like image and heaven and earth. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get us to see that creation story through Jesus-colored lenses, right? Jesus was there. It was all for Jesus. It was all in Jesus, all through Jesus, The cosmos was created for him, so everything is ultimately about him. Then in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? So, again, his preeminent stature is not an afterthought. afterthought. It's not an incidental consequence of God's plan of redemption. Right? Creation itself was made to magnify God's Son. And then sin 
was a secondary, another issue entirely. Jesus' as creator brought heaven and earth into existence and ever since has sustained their existence even after becoming incarnate. So very quickly, let's summarize that first half, the first half of the paragraph. Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. He's no longer hidden, right? He's the means and the goal of creation, right? It was created through him and it was created for him. When God comes to fully dwell in creation through Christ, creation will have fullness of life. And he is the glue that holds it all together. Now, here's where it gets interesting, right? Here's where it gets amazing for me, and I hope it gets amazing for you and powerful and far more hopeful than simply praying, oh, Lord, get me out of this mess, and I hope to go to heaven. Far more powerful and hopeful than simply praying for the eternal salvation of dying soldiers in Ukraine. So much more. It says this in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. I just kind of want to stop and just kind of take that in for a second. Just as God is the author of all creation in, through, and for Jesus, he's also the author of the new creation in, through, and for Jesus, and now his body, the church. I, I mean, I just want to take you, take a moment and let that sink in just, just a minute. Right? Everything that we just talked about in verses 15, 16, and 17, we exhibit now as his body, the church. Right? You can go amazing, wow, amazing, chapters 15, 16, and 17, but then you get to 18 and you think, now it's us. Right? That's hope. That's a for real kind of hope. He's the author of the new creation. So he's not only the firstborn over all creation, but he's also the firstborn among the dead. Now, at this point, this firstborn, both meanings. Not only is it a, a, a term of rank and authority, but he's also the first. Right? He's the first to be resurrected and not then die later on. Lazarus, mm, right? He didn't. He got raised, but then he died again. Jesus was the first. He, he, he didn't die again, right? He was raised, and he is literally chronologically, sequentially the first, but also the authority and the power behind everything. Verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. By his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has, inter, has inaugurated the creation age, the new creation age. But and this is the amazing thing. His power and his authority were on display by bringing in the existence of heaven and earth. His power and authority were also demonstrated in bringing into existence the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. And that power and authority, I, I just want to make sure you all catch this, right? That same power and authority that God gave Jesus, Jesus gives to us, the church, right? He died for our sins. Absolutely, we sang about it. There's no doubt about that. But the bigger story that holds the precious gospel story is how Jesus and the Holy Spirit, guided by our Heavenly Father, colludes to bring us into God's life. That salvation, whether you sinned or not, Without living God's life, you're not living the fullest life that you could be living. Sin or not, let's just take sin off the table for a moment. Without you being filled with the Holy Spirit, you are not experiencing God's life. You are experiencing, uh, and you're just struggling. See, in Christ, the church is now the very image of the new creation. That's crazy. That's amazing, right? The unity and love of the church is the very image of the perichoresis, right? The life of God. 
In Christ, the church is now the means and goal of the new creation. By way of the spirit-filled church, God will come to dwell in creation, to be all in all, and creation will have fullness of life. And then in Christ, the church is now the glue that holds all the new creation together. When we're in Christ and Christ is in us, we provide the answer to the question, what difference the cross makes? Our lives provide the answer, not where we're going when we die. That provides no answer to people's struggles here and now today. Because of these things, I know the church will be triumphant in its mission. And that's something to sing about. Right? There's something to celebrate even in the midst of the worst that the world can throw at us. It threw its worst at Jesus, and guess what? He won. And as the world throws its worst at you, in Christ you'll have victory. Oh, it's going to hurt. It's this thing is going to leave a mark. I promise you that. Right? Don't, you know. But he's going to walk you through, and he's never going to leave you or forsake you.